most unwanted. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no replacing me with Robert Patrick later on in the series. This is Encounter 502, The Truth, Fridays on Fox. In my book, The Paranormal and the Paranoid, Conspiratorial Science Fiction Television, which is far too expensive for me to ever recommend anyone buying, thank you, publishers, I came up with the following for the subtitle of my chapter on the X-Files. The intersection of real and manufactured mythology. And I, I think that's still a good way to look at the show. Before looking at the X-Files, though, I just want to, want to, for the sake of thoroughness, take a minute to recognize that, especially in its second season, the classic series Twin Peaks had some flying saucer connections. In particular, we have the character of Major Briggs, whose work with the Air Force involved carrying on its UFO investigation arm, Project Blue Book, after it was publicly closed in 1969. Hmm, sounds very X-Files-like. There's also talk of alien signals being beamed from space and the classic and classically unsettling line, the owls are not what they seem. All of this furthered things a, a bit and was, was emblematic of intermingling these worlds of flying saucers and other paranormal phenomenon, which was really, you know, not the done thing at the time in, in, popular, uh, in popular media. So if you could, if, by the way, if you find the combination of flying saucers and owls intriguing on some sort of visceral level that you can't explain, I recommend reading the works of researcher Mike Cleland. Now, on to the X-Files. It was September 1993. It was a Friday night on Fox. A new show began. And I was pretty deeply into the flying saucer world at this point. And, and so the promos for the show made it look like nothing else on television. So I, I, I tuned in. And that first episode was good. It wasn't as good as what would come, uh, but it was amazing. And, and we'll get to that first episode in detail later, of course. But if I can just sort of fanishly gush for a bit, it was dark, not just thematically, but visually very dark. And Mark Snow's music was was usually pretty haunting. And, and remember, this first episode, this pilot episode, didn't have that iconic theme tune. There were hints of a larger conspiracy, uh, but you weren't knocked over the head with it, which would come later in the show. Sadly, the acting wasn't great in particular. Uh, Duchovny is, is given some, I think, some bad direction on how to say some worse lines. And I, I think that shows. But the characters were just right, right from the very beginning. And Gillian Anderson was amazing, is amazing. I love Gillian Anderson. I, I've, I've loved Gillian Anderson since September of 1993. Okay, gushing over. So, according to a number of interviews, including those for the excellent The Complete X-Files by Matt Hurwitz and Chris Knowles, Chris Carter's ideas for the series grew from a variety of sources, including the political mood following the Watergate break-in and cover-up. And the political skullduggery of the 1970s influenced others who worked on the show as well. Rob Bowman, one of the series' best directors, described uh, that syndicate of bad guys controlling the whole conspiracy that would appear later on as... Um, as, as being this, quote, they represent betrayal from the Watergate days. They wield power without conscience. So Watergate and, and that sort of political milieu was an important factor, but equal important 
was a 1991 Roper survey that suggested that over 3 million Americans might have been the victims of alien abductions. And uh, John Mack, a Harvard Medical School psychology professor, gave public weight to these findings and became probably the most well-regarded investigator of the so-called abduction phenomenon, uh, a field that up to that point had really not had academics of Mack's caliber involved and honestly would never have... um, academics of max caliber involved ever again. So Carter said in 1994 in an interview, quote, everybody wants to hear that story. Abduction is tantamount to a religious experience. Now that note, end quote, now that notion is something we're going to have to spend a whole episode unpacking at some point in the future. But anyway, so basically the abduction angle provided a narrative hook to go with the conspiratorial mood inspired by Watergate and similar events. We're a few years out from Iran-Contra. There was increased talk of the October surprise deal during the 1980 election, all kinds of stuff. So media scholar Gordon Arnold has argued that the X-Files, quote, represents the apex of post-World War II conspiracy theory, end quote. And when it premiered in September of 93, it was not the first time primetime television had dealt with the paranormal and supernatural topics or to present its protagonists as victims of a conspiracy. So why was the X-Files significant as a turning point in the way television treated this stuff? One of the Frequently cited reasons for its appeal in the early 90s was the cultural and political context, a, an increasing mistrust and authority that was presumed to exist. Jur- journalist, uh, a journalist named Bruce Headlam was writing about the show back in 1995, about two years into its nine-year run, and was actually writing about, you know, really this show has nowhere left to go. They've pretty much exhausted all the options that... Uh, that they could possibly talk about. But he said, quote, the X-Files came along at a time when a great deal of attention had turned to the kind of conspiracy theories that interpret everything as part of a sinister plot launched against the citizens of the United States by their own government, end quote. This view of the popularity and appeal of the show is fairly standard, but it's only one of the possible explanations for why it would become kind of the the, the benchmark and, and gold standard of paranormal television in the 1990s. And, and paranoid television in the 1990s. This was a staple of, of a, this kind of thing was a staple of a lot of films of the 1970s, especially. I think the Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, things like that. Quirky FBI agents uh, were part of Twin Peaks, so that element had been around. The notion of a man and woman teaming up to investigate the paranormal, we see that in at least one place. There was a, a synd- I think it was syndicated show called Beyond Reality with, uh, with Sherry Belafonte and uh, a bunch of people who don't matter. And um, y- you don't need to go check it out. I-, I think I got the only copy that ever made it onto DVD. I- I'm not even sure it's real. Um, I'm not sure I still have it. I-, I bought it when I was writing that book. And uh, I-, I watched some episodes and, and it was it was terrible. The only reason to actually try to find it is it has a um, a pre-Star Trek Deep Space Nine Nicole DeBoer. So if you are a Star Trek thespian, if you're an aficionado of Star Trek actors, parts, and other series, that would be the best reason to pick it up. So few, if any, of the of what we think of the, of the defining characteristics of the X-Files were entirely unique to the X-Files, either on television or film in 1993, but it arrived when there was at least a perception that some elements of the government or other entities were actively working to undermine liberty and freedom. So if you look at Bill Cooper, like we saw in our 
last episode. That kind of overarching conspiracy theory covering something up, whether it's aliens or something else, it was part of the overused word here, part of the zeitgeist at the time. Another thing that was part of this this time was, was that there was an increasing public awareness of flying saucers and allegations that the government, or at least factions within the government, were involved in a cover-up of the truth about aliens visiting us. In 1990, though, New York Times reporter Howard Blum published Out There, the government's secret quest for extraterrestrials, and it explored what the defense and intelligence establishment knew about UFOs. And his conclusions were the government had, despite claims to the contrary, been deeply interested in UFO sightings and alleged encounters. But unlike most conspiracy theories, Bloom asserted that this, if this, if there was a that the, that there was a UFO working group of some kind, if they were actively hiding everything, they were hiding their own ignorance about what was actually going on. Uh, the book was also one of the the first mainstream publications to, ex- as opposed to UFO books, to extensively discuss the Majestic Twelve or MJ Twelve papers and print facsimiles of them. Out there, along with Omni Magazine, uh, which was great, we'll hear more about Omni Magazine later. Um, these things increased UFO and paranormal awareness among a more general public. So there's a, a, a bigger cross section of Americans exposed to what were sort of the foundational myths of the 80s and 90s UFO cover-up theories. And I've got to say, Out There was the book that got me into this saucer life more than any other. Um, it was looking at those facsimiles of the MJ-12 documents and and thinking, oh my gosh, either this is real or somebody wants me to think it's real and this is weird. Um, and it should probably go without saying that I was a firm devotee of Omni Magazine. So, historical background wrapping up, thankfully. By 1993, American television viewers were largely familiar with the basics of both the idea that UFOs were possibly craft from other planets and, very important for the success of the X-Files, that there were possibly serious attempts by the U.S. government and military to hide the truth about these craft from the American people. So the show arrived on TV at probably the best possible time for public recognition of these things. Um, We can argue that fact or that idea all day long. Um, Public recognition would get bigger as the 90s go on, uh, peaking around 1997, as we'll see in a few few episodes time when we look at that year. But to what degree was the X-Files a factor in the increasing public awareness and interest in UFOs. I think without the X-Files, that awareness wouldn't have gotten much bigger by 1997 than it was in 1993. What data do I have to back this up? Absolutely none. But I think it's, um, I, I think it's a, a reasonable sort of, sort of theory. And it, one thing we can't ignore with the success of the X-Files is that it wasn't just the topic that was good. The writing was good. The direction was good. David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson were incredible, are incredible. They are what make the X-Files what it was. Their, their chemistry, their timing, along with the writing and the direction, made that show successful, despite starting off in a 9 p.m. Friday slot, sort of the slot where networks put shows that they they have bought, but yeah, we don't have a lot invested in this surviving. So Fridays at nine in the fall, 
everybody's in, in nice weather, everybody's busy and, and cold weather, you know, maybe people watch it, but you know, it wasn't a great slot. It survived the shift from Vancouver to Los Angeles for production. The workload of additional series by the production team like Millennium and ugh, Harsh Realm and The Lone Gunman, a movie halfway through. Um, ratings continued to go up as the seasons continued. Um, they even got rid of David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. It survived all of this. This wasn't all down to the fact that people thought UFOs were pretty cool. No, it was the show was good, but it was a good show combined with the public awareness of the UFO thing that was rising in the early 90s. It all just sort of came together at the right time. So throughout the first season of the show, the creators, Chris Carter and the other writers, appropriated aspects of the dominant paranormal and conspiracy culture and used them as a source of plot details. And it's important to acknowledge that any of the contemporary connections we draw between the X-Files and the paranormal and conspiracy culture that surrounded it may not have been entirely conscious or intentional on the part of the people who made the X-Files. This wasn't an attempt to, you know, I read some stuff on the internet, let's make a TV show out of it. Rather, statements in a uh, really good, extensive Omni magazine show um, in the December 1994 issue of Omni, um, they talk about they talk to Chris Carter, and it goes a long way towards establishing the way the series creative team saw the relationship to paranormal and conspiracy culture at the time. In the interview, Carter explained that the show's creative staff used reports of paranormal experiences and conspiracy theories as, quote, a jumping off point rather than a source to be directly adapted into televisual form. In the years since then, there's been some hints and some suggestions by people connected to the show that there were people from aspects of the government, particularly the FBI, I believe, who had a uh, had an advisory role in if I'm remembering correctly, a fairly unofficial manner. But this was, there, there's no evidence that this was an attempt to directly translate the conspiracy or UFO culture to the screen. Um, in fact, one of the, one of the biggest sort of influences on the show, besides the Watergate mythos and, and conspiracy films of the seventies is, um, is, is Kolchak, the night stalker, the show from the 1970s, which is, which is very much akin to a lot of the, uh, the sort of monster of the week episodes that we'd see during the show. So we're going to look at, um, a few episodes here and, um, we're going to start with the first two. And, uh, when they when the show debuted, there was a, a pair of stories, Pilot and Deep Throat, that taken individually are really like two separate pilot episodes. Taken collectively, it's sort of a holistic vision for the conspiracy feel that the show would uh, would have over the course of its first season. And, and actually, the, the the sort of story arc for the first season starts there too. After the first season, things go off the rails. I'm a com I, I acknowledge I'm a complete X-Files hipster and anything after May of 1994 just isn't as good. Don't argue with me. I, you can disagree, but I don't care. So, um, this first season, the, the pilot episode, it, it establishes the, the skeptical Dana Scully and the credulous, more credulous Fox Mulder. And there's a series of murders in Oregon. And the murder victims have marks that, according to Mulder, suggest they'd been subject to alien abductions. Um, Scully discovers a metallic object in one of the victims' nasal cavities, and, and implants have been part of the, the UFO abduction phenomenon during that time as well. Um, Mulder 
as background, as you probably know, has been searching for his sister who was abducted during their childhood. But throughout the episode, mysterious forces place roadblocks in their way. Their hotel burns down with all of the evidence, you know, taking it with it. Um, And in a a key closing scene, the guy who we would eventually know as the cigarette smoking man takes the implant that uh, Scully managed to hang on to and puts it in a secure vault in the Pentagon in a bin full of a bunch of other implants. So we know that there's, we know that there's a cover up. We know that that um, that the fix is in and our heroes are are you know on the loose on the loose that's not right but uh, our heroes are on the case rather so by the end of that pilot episode we're aware of what we think to be the truth the alien presence is real. Mulder's sister was abducted by aliens. Untrustworthy people in the government are trying to discredit Mulder in order to hide all of that. Scully's their tool in this effort. Elements of the government have evidence of aliens and refuse to release it to the public. And a lot of these would remain pretty significant aspects of, of the rest of the show. So Deep Throat, the second episode is sort of a counterpart to pilot reinforcing the skeptic believer dynamic of, of Scully and Mulder. Uh, they go to Ellen's air force base in Idaho. Ellen's air force base is a clear analog to and homophony like anagram of Nellis air force base, groom Lake area 51, that kind of stuff. Um, a pilot has disappeared and reappeared and there's been sightings of amazingly advanced aircraft. They're warned away from it by a mysterious man known as Deep Throat, but not explicitly referred to by this name until much later. Despite being warned off, Mulder and Scully keep investigating the air bases and the security staff is, you know, irritated at them. Mulder sneaks onto the base, sees the black triangular craft, sees proof of what we are led to believe is alien technology, but they wipe his memory. So he doesn't, uh, he doesn't remember it later. Mulder meets with deep throat who says, yes, they've been here for a, for a very long time. So it sort of firms up. The pilot talks about abduction stuff. Deep throat talks about the government use of alien technology. Um, Robert Sherman in his book, uh, Wanting to Believe, it's sort of a critical episode guide to all of the Chris Carter shows that I highly recommend, says that Deep Throat serves as a mission statement for the series as a whole. And quote, it has offered us all the proof we need that the government is colluding with aliens in some form, but Scully hasn't seen this proof and Mulder has forgotten it. The audience now knows what our heroes need to rediscover. End quote. And of course, the nickname Deep Throat is a clear Watergate callback and also a not so comfy reminder of just how old this first season is. A younger viewer, not necessarily cognizant of all the ins and outs of Watergate, much less the nickname given to a reporter's informant, might have some awkward questions about the character name Deep Throat. So Sherman's observation is one that connects the structure of the X-Files to the wider paranormal and conspiracy cultures. Conspiracy theorists and and, and believers in the paranormal often find themselves in a similar position to that of, of Mulder at the end of Deep Throat. They believe they know the truth, but there's no absolute proof that will convince everybody else. It renders these believers unable to convince others. So the references to black triangular craft that utilize alien technology, secret air bases, and the mysterious government informants, while those represent recognizable aspects of UFO paranoia 
and belief. It's this idea of hidden knowledge, real to the believer, but difficult, if not impossible to prove, that provides the most solid connection, I think, between the show and the subculture that partially inspired it. Between the literal ties between the fictional world Carter created and the non-fictional belief systems that had developed over the previous decades, the continuing ordeals of Mulder and Scully parallel the divide between the UFO and conspiracy believers and the world which refuses to accept their evidence as being sufficient to alter their worldview. If Deep Throat is a mission statement for the X-Files, then that fictional mission reflects the very real mission that conspiracy theorists have, have been assigned by fate or whatever to bring the truth to light. So over the course of these two episodes, in, in less than two hours of total screen time, Chris Carter presents viewers with many of the standard tropes of UFO and alien abduction lore, as well as the connection between the f phenomenon and the paranoia of government secrecy. So over this first season, there's some episodes like this that advance the UFO lore, and there's some episodes that uh, that deal with other topics that are more Kolchak the Night Stalkery. You've got pyrokinetics. You've got creepy genetically enhanced twins. You've got some mind control type stuff going on. There's there's a whole sort of array of non-saucer conspiracy that's part of the X-Files first season and is therefore outside of the umbrella of what we're talking about on this show. But um, the, the, of, of course, the UFO thread remains strong. So back in the day, not sure which day, but after 1973, uh, UFO researcher and lecturer Stan Friedman coined the phrase Cosmic Watergate to describe what he considers to be the U.S. government's extensive decades-long cover-up of the alien stuff. As we're seeing in this 90s Strike Back series of episodes, this cover-up is at the heart of the UFO culture at the, at the time. It also, incidentally, provides another indicator, this phrase does, of how deeply Watergate became embedded as a shorthand for government conspiracy. So among the first season episodes of The X-Files, few had a higher density, I think, I think sort of, sort of reference, UFO references per minute. The highest rate is probably the 10th episode of the first season, Fallen Angel. So it illustrates the way that the show was a crucial factor in a number of intersections between media and belief. The plot involves Mulder heading out for Townsend, Wisconsin. Deep Throat's told him there's been a UFO crash. Mulder has to get out there before the government cleans it all up. Of course, Mulder doesn't. Ends up in the stockade with a cellmate named Max Fennig. Max Fennig is a UFO investigator, and um, he... Uh, he belongs, he, he disappears. Um, Scully's arrived to collect Mulder because he's in trouble back in Washington. Uh, Mulder wants to stay and investigate. Fennec breaks into their hotel room and reveals he knows all of Mulder's work. He's been tracking him through Freedom of Information Act requests, which filing Freedom of Information Act requests is sort of, you know, upper level UFO researcher stuff where it's like, ah, if I just hit the right combination of keywords, they'll have to reveal the truth. Or I've got a bunch of FBI travel receipts and now I have uh, the truth in my head. Um, Mulder comes to believe that Fennig is an alien abductee because he has some abnormal seizures and he's got a scar behind his ear, um, which Mulder says he's seen in a lot of abductions. So another sort of implant thing. Um, at the end, uh, Fennig is, is 
experiences an alien apotheosis. He's in that classic cliched image of uh, of flying saucerdom. We see him drawn upward into the flying saucer in a beam of light. Um, it's it's a good episode, but uh, the references to, to various UFO and conspiracy things are are, are massive in this episode. Leaving aside the the broad idea of government UFO ca- crash retrieval operations, um, Max Fennig is is sort of it's almost like uh, it's like that kind of like that Doctor Who episode Love and Monsters where they write in a fan club for the Doctor as sort of a, a statement on on Doctor Who fandom uh, back in the eighties. Uh, Fennig is a, is a UFO guy inside an, an episode of the X Files and um, in their big overview of every episode of the X-Files ever a few years ago, Entertainment Weekly, uh, not the greatest publication, but this is an interesting thing. And, and I think most people, when they read it, were like, oh, that makes sense. I don't think it does. Said that Max Fennig was sort of a, a precursor to The Lone Gunman, that that Fennig was, was sort of a rough draft of The Lone Gunman, who we'll talk about in a minute. But to treat Max merely as... Um, a, quote, endearing lone gunman precursor and conspiracy freak misses the point of Max Fennec uh, and the point of the connections between his character and the larger culture this episode was was trying to reflect and recreate. Anyway, at the risk of presenting a lengthy list of UFO references in the episode, um, it, 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 it's, it's neat to look at some of the minutiae. Um, Max is uh, says he's a member of NICAP, which you know, Donald Kehoe was his organization. It was defunct by 1980, so Max wouldn't have been a member of that. He asks Mulder if Mulder's a member of that new organization, PSYCOP, uh, which was is, I think they're still around, um, a, uh, a debunking organization, a skeptical debunking organization who probably would not have sent somebody out to investigate a flying saucer crash. So NICAP's defunct, PSYCOP doesn't really fit, but the references that sounded serious and real to most viewers probably, and, and those who knew what these organizations were might be kind of amused that, that the producers had actually sourced the names of real organization. Of course, people would complain probably that, uh, that well, well, NICAP didn't exist and PSYCOP doesn't work because they're skeptics like I just did. So um, you can't please everybody, but I, I like little touches of real things. Um, other other things that we see is, is Fennig says he knows of, of Mulder's work not only through FOIA requests, but because um, he read an article about the Gulf Breeze sightings that Mulder wrote under an anagrammatic pseudonym for Omni Magazine. And I think this is important because the Gulf Breeze sightings were a real set of sightings in Florida um, a, a few years previously. And Omni Magazine was a real magazine that had articles about things like the Gulf Breeze sightings. This episode doesn't just make up a name for a UFO organization that we're supposed to recognize isn't real, but is like the one that is real. It doesn't make up a magazine like Omni, but clearly not saying Omni magazine or saying the Lake Huron sightings make something up instead of the Gulf Breeze sightings. It's using real things. It's interacting with both the trappings of the culture, not just old stuff. Not just old stuff from the 50s and 60s, but stuff that's just a few years old with the Gulf Breeze sightings. Referencing current publications like Omni Magazine. That's an important bit of interaction with with, with both the UFO culture and the, if I can call it this, the UFO and paranormal media sphere 
of the time. So Max is abducted at the end of Fallen Angel, but he'll return in two season four episodes. Um, what were they called? I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Tempest Fugit and Max, that's what they were called. And he'll be back. And so they revisit this abduction case and this whole, uh, this whole encounter. And what's really interesting about this, and we're getting out of our first season thing, but it's okay because it's a sequel to some first season episodes. And there would be a sequel to the pilot episode later on that wraps some things up. But in Tempest Fugit and Max, we get this return of this character and return of all of this. And it's really interesting because it's a flashback, not only to a story from the first season, but to the mood of the first season and to the UFO references of, of the first season without the epic and confusing and, and to my mind, slightly ridiculous black oil alien infiltration mythology that had come into the show later. Um, and so, so those two episodes, Tempest Fugit and Max, uh, while they don't really sit entirely comfortably within the context of those mid to later seasons, I, I think it's a great sort of reminder of, um, X-Files hipster mode on of how much better the show was in season one than it ever would be again. Wow. I'm not just saying that to be obnoxious or to be contrary. I really love season one of the X-Files more than, more than almost any single season of any television show ever. What a strange and somewhat obnoxious thing to say, but it's, it's true. So Fallen Angel, um, is there EBE episode 17 of the first season. Um, also, draws deeply from paranormal and conspiracy culture of the time. Uh, Mulder and Scully are on a, a cross-country trek to find uh, to find an alien craft and its occupant. Deep Throat is there providing cryptic information, and a lot of it, this is great, is misinformation to, to serve as sort of a test of Mulder's tenacity. And at the end of the episode, the, the alien's gone, Mulder as usual, has nothing. Um, Deep Throat says, yeah, the creature's dead and provides the story of how in, in Vietnam he was, you know, there's an agreement between all the major nations to to kill any aliens they find. And in Vietnam, he had to do this himself. And the remorse from this is what's driving him to help Mulder. And, and Mulder has a, a great bit of dialogue. Um, there's this heartfelt confession from Deep Throat about, I feel remorse for killing the little alien guy. And Mulder simply replies, I'm wondering which lie to believe. And it could be in another show that isn't as cool. One of those turning point episodes in a serial style show where we get some revelation that moves us closer to the truth or some kind of resolution. But Mulder's which lie to believe line provides another thematic connection to the larger paranormal and conspiracy culture of the time. The prevalence of disinformation, whether from the government or from um, within the UFO field itself. Remember the Krill document? It was, was manufactured by UFO guys, supposedly, as a hoax to expose Bill Cooper's dishonest self-promotion, right? So the story, although centered on Mulder and Scully's search for a stranded extra-biological, extraterrestrial, rather, biological entity, the EBE of the title, also introduces a greater dose of political-themed conspiracy theory than most episodes. There's offhand references to Gulf War Syndrome, for example, and Mulder and Scully, for the first time, consult with the lone gunman. Uh, the group initially functions as a mechanism to provide perspective to viewers. In, in the face of their outlandishly insane paranoia, 
Mulder doesn't seem quite so nuts. He isn't as paranoid as these guys. And the conversation with these three is very strange. And in contrast to they become later more comical and and honestly more sympathetic and lovable later on, in their first appearance, they are off-putting and unpleasant. And it starts with the discussion of Gulf Gulf War Syndrome. Uh, They mock Mulder's alien um, hobby and, and instead focus on political and economic motivations for various conspiracy events. So there's political and paranormal paranoia driving the plot of this uh, of this episode. It's a good one, um, mostly because the, the lone gunman would never be as effective again. Oh my gosh, I am I'm realizing just now how dismissive I how much the first season how much of it I love more than the rest of the show that the lone gunman should not be cuddly and comical as much as I love their, their short-lived spinoff series. The lone gunman should not be comical. They should be sinister and creepy. And, um, and, and you, you don't want to meet guys like the lone gunman. You cross the street to avoid guys like the lone gunman. So, the finale of season one, the Erlenmeyer flask episode 24, um, closes out this cycle of stories with deep throat, uh, as Mulder's informant and, uh, sets the stage for a more complex mythology that would, uh, start building during the second season. Erlenmeyer flask concerns, not just the government possession of aliens or alien corpses, but the genetic manipulation of humanity with this extraterrestrial material. And this is something that would be a launching point and be developed more as the series goes on and as it develops that, that myth arc, uh, as it becomes known. But it's also something that was, was part of the UFO and paranormal lore at the time, as if you've been listening for the last few months, you would almost hmm, close to well, more than six months since last August. If you've heard the Krill episode, if you heard the Bill Cooper episode, if you've heard any of other other 90s-themed stuff, 80s and 90s-themed stuff, this idea of the genetic manipulation of humanity using biological material from aliens was a, a constant fear. And of course, the episode ends with Deep Throat being killed and Mulder sort of set adrift and the X-Files closed down, which, watching it, in 1994 and may of 94 without any sort of access to insider knowledge about which shows were being canceled and which shows were being picked up. I was very, very concerned that this was a way to just sort of end the series with the first season and there would be no more episodes and I would never see Gillian Anderson on my television again. And I would be very, very sad. So that's the first season of the X-Files. And what's interesting is not just looking at the show itself, but also looking at the way that at least some portions of the, the UFO and paranormal community viewed the show during this, this first season. And so to do this, we're we're going to go back to our old gang of, uh, of misfits at alt.aliens.visitors, um, back in 93 and 94 and see what they have to say about these things. So one example is of of the of the response to the show is, is that the show represented a form of disclosure 
designed to prepare the public for the truth, or perhaps to prevent scenarios to encourage viewers to consider the reality of various paranormal scenarios. So one Alt-Alien Visitors poster in response to the EBE episode said the following. This episode has got to be one of the best episodes ever. I love the way they integrated the secret government conspiracy theory with all kinds of disinformation strategies to throw Mulder off the track. I just can't help thinking that these type of things could actually happen. There's one thing, though, that I haven't read of before. This episode brought up the possibility of aliens rescuing their fellow aliens from captivity. I never thought of that, although now it seems so logical that they would free their own kind. This theme of disclosure and disinformation would be a recurring one in discussions about the show and in discussions between believers in whether or not that, you know, these things were, these episodes were were real or based on real topics. Another popular sort of theme in the series early years was the question of how many of these stories were based on real events. Uh, The show's pilot carried a caption at the beginning that said, quote, the following story is inspired by actual documented accounts, which is a a very clever and official sounding way of this story is based on things people have said um, and that other people have written down and thus are documented throughout the series. But especially between 93 and 95, alt alien visitors, other Usenet groups saw a number of recurring discussions about the degree to which the show was based on real reports. This example of one of those claims is uh, if you could see it, you'd see how heavily misspelled it is. And I'm trying to make it as clear as possible for you. It's real because I read an article about it. The producer read a lot of X-Files from the Pentagon for inspiration before making films. Some films were the real adaption in a film of the X-Files. Paranoid speculation on the possibility that the X-Files was produced in collaboration or collusion with dark governmental forces surfaces in the debate um, on why the show even exists. And and the actual existence of the show becomes kind of a conspiracy theory in itself. How is this show so successful on a dead time slot like Friday nights at nine on a nothing network like Fox, unless somebody within the government wants us to see it, man? Don't you get it? Wake up, sheeple. So this, um, this continued, this kind of idea would, would continue surfacing, uh, such as, uh, such as this guy named Jeff, who said the following. Social conditioning. Who are you going to call when you want the masses indoctrinated? Mr. Webb, of course, a la Dragnet. This is a reference, of course, to Jack Webb's show Dragnet being um, being at least partially in existence because President Nixon wanted positive images of the police and law enforcement on television. And Jack Webb also produced a show called Project UFO, which dramatized various cases and investigations from, um, from Project Blue Book. So maybe there's uh, maybe there's something to this. Uh, so so other viewers felt there was no real evidence that the show was anything more than than entertainment. Interesting idea, but what is the X Files conditioning the public for? What are they trying to indoctrinate us to believe? I don't mean to sound sarcastic. I would really like to know. I've not seen any sign of social conditioning in this series, but that's a sign of effective conditioning, isn't it? Smiley face. Eventually, once the show became an institution later in the 90s, the phrase X-Files would be um, used as a, as a shorthand for any sort of revelations by government agencies of, of any sort of documentation that they'd investigated UFO sightings. Britain's Ministry of Defense to open the X-Files. Does the FBI have a real X-Files? This sort of thing. 
after the second season, once the show began to develop its own mythology that was in many ways more, it was thematically connected to the broader paranormal and and conspiracy culture, but it didn't take as many direct cues like episodes like EBE or Fallen Angel did. Once that shift to the series' internal myth-arc mythology began to take place, you don't see as much discussion in online paranormal forms about the show, uh, mostly because there are there are now separate places for fans to talk about it, and there are paranormal buffs in in those fan forums. But um, the X Files goes from being oh my gosh, it, it, this is so weird and so cool, what could this be? To oh yeah, it's a really popular show that gets a lot of details wrong, and if they knew more about UFOs, they wouldn't say the things they say. So there there gets to, and I'm one of those people who said things like that back in the '90s. So. It, it becomes a bit different. It, it becomes a, a televisual institution rather than a, a, a quirky little weird show that was talking about flying saucer stuff that almost nobody else did. And, and this self-contained mythology would, would sort of isolate the X-Files from some avenues that, that typified broader conspiracy or paranormal cultures of the time. And it's about that time, the 95, 96, that the X-Files really began to veer off from the saucer life. It was a fun show and an important one, but the truth, though it was out there, was not going to be Friday Nights on Fox. Some books to read. The Complete X-Files, big coffee table-sized book by Matt Hurwitz and Chris Knowles, uh, Christopher Knowles. Uh, Christopher Knowles is, if you Google him, he's written some really cool stuff, not just about the X-Files, but about Millennium and um, a great series of articles about Millennium's connections to various government conspiracies, especially mind control stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. And uh, Millennium itself is outside the scope of uh, of our of our show here in the Saucer Life, but uh, Millennium's Millennium's some weird, wild stuff. And also, if if you're an X Files novice, which I, I can't believe a huge number of you are, uh, if you're listening to this show, but if you if you're an X Files novice or you want to get a quick insight into which episodes you should revisit. The best episode guide out there is Wanting to Believe, a critical guide to the X-Files, Millennium, The Lone Gunman, um, and Harsh Realm by uh, Robert Sherman. It's published by Mad Norwegian Press. Uh, Rob Sherman, um, for trivia buffs, is the guy who wrote the first season Doctor Who story Dalek back in 2005. Uh, and it's it's probably my favorite X-Files episode guide. It, it goes into quite a bit of depth and it's a it's sort of a a a writer's perspective a, a stage writer and, and, and screenwriter's perspective on the episode so it, it's, a, it's a little different perspective there are links to those books on uh, on for sale on Amazon in the show notes in our next encounter we're going to look at little gray men abductions and the alien agenda through the 1990s eyes of two very different researchers. One is Dr. David Jacobs and the other is Dr. Richard Boylan. And as a bonus, we will have uh, stories of my personal interactions with each of these men. Ooh, be warned, the stories aren't that interesting, but you know, they're still kind of cool. You can check out the archives of the show at saucerlife.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at the saucerlife at gmail.com. 
We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are always appreciated. Thanks to those who've left um, left reviews already. Special thank you this week to Nelson Sinat for some research assistance. Uh, the Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>